What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Would you be surprised if I told you that the Navy has credited you with over 160 kills? Mm. Do you ever think that you might have seen things or done some things over there that you wish you hadn't? I was just protecting my guys. They were trying to kill our soldiers, and uh, I'm willing to meet my creator and answer for every shot that I took. You can sleep safe knowing I've got your back, Josh. Thanks. Bradley Cooper there as Chris Kyle, the deadliest sniper in U.S. military history and the subject of the Oscar-nominated and mind-bogglingly successful new film from Clint Eastwood, American Sniper. Our review of American Sniper, plus some thoughts on the Oscar nominations, and we'll take our best shot at predicting what will eventually be our favorite films of the new year with our 2015 movie preview. That and more. Best shot. I see what you did there. Nothing gets past you. All ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. Two movies currently playing. One of them, Josh, we mentioned last week on the show, Boccaccio 70. The Italian omnibus film features pieces by some heavyweight directors like Visconti, Fellini, and De Sica. And Mubi is showing Boccaccio 70 to pay tribute to the recently departed Anita Ekberg. Of course, here she is riffing here in this film on her iconic La Dolce Vita role. Dear Zachary, also now playing this highly personal documentary. It was a word of mouth hit. Deeply emotional, Josh. I haven't seen it yet, but that's what I've heard from many film spotting listeners over the years. It came out in 2008. The alternate title, or the full title, is Dear Zachary, A Letter to His Son About His Father. And I have to confess, it just seems so heavy. I've been avoiding it because I don't know if I want to go on the emotional roller coaster that I think it's going to take me on. If you want to go on that journey, it is currently playing at Mubi. And coming soon, opening this Saturday, Dark Days, an award-winning documentary by Mark Singer. It looks at homeless people living in an abandoned part of New York City's subway system. And Lynn Shelton's Hump Day, I'm always up for promoting that movie again, Josh. Mubi is starting a 10-day Sundance retrospective this weekend. Again, you can try Mubi free for a month by going to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Pretty much exactly a year ago, Josh, we sat in these very same seats looking ahead to 2014. And five films, to us, stood at the head of the pack, hands down our most anticipated movies of the year, with the exception of one of those films, Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, which was pushed back to November of this year and just might come up again later in the show. We'll see. All of them, I think it's fair to say, met or exceeded some already high expectations. Inherent Vice, Boyhood, Gone Girl, and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Every one of those films, I suppose, also worth noting, notched at least one Oscar nomination last week, though maybe not the nominations some of them deserved hello Ray Fiennes. No kidding. What 2015 movies have us most intrigued? That's coming later in the show. But first, our review of a film that may, given its recent box office success, now be among the best picture frontrunners. 
hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. Her arms aren't swinging, she's carrying something. Yeah, she's got a grenade, she's got an RKG rushing grenade, she's saying to the kid. You say a woman and a kid? You got eyes on this, can you confirm? Negative. Your call. They fry you if you're wrong. Who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of movie masculinity, Adam? We could throw around a number of names. John Wayne. And okay, here we go. The answers, though, they would probably largely depend on how we define masculinity, whether it's the John Wayne type or another type. Certainly, though, I think Clint Eastwood would have to be in the conversation. First as an actor, then as a director, Eastwood has helped define for better and worse what it means to be a man on screen. For My Money, Unforgiven, Mystic River, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, where he was only an actor, are among his strongest considerations of the topic. Absolute power and space cowboys? Not so much. No? No. He returns to the subject of masculinity in American Sniper, based on the autobiography of Chris Kyle, known as America's deadliest sniper for his multiple tours in Iraq, played here by Bradley Cooper. In particular, the film explores what it means to be a masculine American male in the wake of 9-11, when the call to fight the war on terror has meant sending young men like Chris Kyle into combat zones so complicated that the traditional notion of what it means to act like a man cannot hold. One thing that went through my mind while watching the movie, Adam, was how well its concerns fit with the theme you gave to your list of the top 10 films of 2014, masculinity on screen. And yet, even though I know you saw American Sniper well before we made our lists, it didn't make your cut. Mm -mm. Should I bother asking whether or not you liked the movie then, <laughs> or is that omission my answer? Well, liked or not is probably simplifying it a bit too much, though, as we get into my thoughts here, that might be appropriate for American Sniper. The real answer to your question about masculinity is it didn't work for me the same way so many other movies this year did because I think it's about masculinity or wrestling with issues of masculinity in the same way it's about post-traumatic stress disorder, the same way it's about politics or the conflict in Iraq, which is perfunctory. The other 2014 movies that really got it right, like Locke, which made my top 10, and a movie like Force Majeure that just missed my top 10, all challenge societal perceptions of what it means to be a man, challenge my personal perceptions of what it means to be a man. And here, just having a big, burly, legendary soldier, he is called Legend because of his reputation, his struggle readjusting to life back home as a husband, as a father, after being in Iraq and seeing all the horrors that he saw, that wasn't enough for me. I expected that struggle. I think by now we expect that struggle when soldiers return home. What's important is how Eastwood, of course, depicts that struggle that matters. And for me, virtually every scene in this movie that occurs between two human beings just talking to each other on screen, with the exception, I'd argue, of the bar scene where Chris Kyle meets his future wife, Taya, or Taya, Taya yeah. played by Sienna Miller. That scene works really well because there are, fortunately, some elements of humor to it. And I like their back and forth in that scene. Otherwise, they're all shot with the patience and nuance of a filmmaker trying to squeeze a scene in before they lose the light or before the call for lunch. Let's get this staged. You express the absolute bare minimum that we need to get the story to the next plot point. In contrast to that, what scenes are really effective in American Sniper? All the sniper scenes. 
all the fighting scenes, except for me, save the finale, which I think is too chaotic insofar as the layers Eastwood keeps introducing and just keeps piling on, arguably to absurd levels. All the other scenes are refreshingly unflashy, not chaotic at all. They employ really rugged, straightforward filmmaking that defines the space, defines the characters in the space, their positions. You can always tell exactly where they are, whether you want to call it a classical style of filmmaking, as some critics like to dub Eastwood's approach. Whatever. It's effective, and it's really effective here. And it's thrilling in the way war movies are, Josh, even the ones that portend to be anti-war. I think it's also revealing that Eastwood feels compelled to give Chris Kyle a nemesis here. There is an opposing sniper who he is out there to get, who is taking down his men just as he's taking down the enemy. As if his struggles at home as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a soldier wouldn't be enough for the audience, we get to fall back on this convenient bad guy, a rival, to give our hero a clear objective. I just think it's a neat little narrative distraction for the audience and for Kyle before getting back to the stuff that can't be fixed with a perfect shot. Yeah, you're hitting on a few things that bothered me as well about the film. Overall, though, I would say that its study of masculinity was extremely compelling and did challenge societal stereotypes. And I think evidence of that is the fact that it's being read in so many different ways. This movie is very divisive, and you have people who are claiming that it's a gung-ho, pro-military style treatise almost on the level of propaganda. You have other people who are claiming that this is, you know, a really evocative expose Mm -hmm. of what the war in Iraq has done. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that the movie is trying to hit a number of different notes. It's not one-sided. Now, how successful is it at striking that balance? Mm -hmm. Moderately. So I would put it in the middle rank of Eastwood's films that do study this theme. Not his best, but I do think it's pretty successful. What I'm hearing from you is sort of a variation on an argument I sometimes use is that I think you mean his heart, Eastwood's heart, the movie's heart, isn't in the PTSD masculinity scenes. It's in the battle scenes. You're right. And, you know, that's I'll I'll just have to take your subjective word for Mm -hmm. that because I've been on that side of it where I'm just not feeling the movie's mojo where I think it wants me to feel it. Gone Girl may be one of those examples, even though I like that movie overall. So I totally understand that, but I do still think that the movie is getting at, particularly in those domestic scenes, maybe they are a bit perfunctory, nothing flashy is going on, but I think they're effective largely because of the actors. Sienna Miller, after a similarly non-flashy role in Foxcatcher, let's say, compared to what she did earlier in her career. She's been a real revelation. It's almost like a second act in her career, these couple of films. I think she's extremely strong with what are cliched scenes, but she elevates them. For me, she did. And I think Bradley Cooper is really strong here, too. I I do want to ask how much of your problem with this film is a Bradley Cooper problem, because I think you've had reservations about some of his other performances. And so it should be interesting to see how you felt about him here. But overall, I thought this was a movie that questioned things where they needed to be questioned, was still respectful of military families and those who have had firsthand experience in Iraq or elsewhere in a way that raises the subject for fruitful conversation. It's by no means to me a tract on either side. Mm. The Cooper dilemma that I have with a lot of films, I think that's going to be the title of my first book, (laughs) The Cooper Dilemma, 
it doesn't apply here. And okay. I've got a couple pages of notes here in front of me. I don't have much at all written about Bradley Cooper, who I liked overall in this movie. And in fact, I told someone, one of our listeners, Josh Youngerman, on Facebook the other day, he said something about one of the nominations that he couldn't believe. I think it was Bradley Cooper. He knows that I don't like him and whatever. And I said, honestly, looking at the nominees, he'd probably get my vote. Hmm. Right now, I'd probably say he should win. I liked his performance overall. I thought he disappeared into this character in the appropriate ways. Yeah. And I felt like he did embody, if the movie didn't overall, he embodied the sense of masculinity that is fractured, certainly. And you had a great line in your review. I read your review on your website, and you nailed it where, because I've said this about him before, that sort of blank stare, yeah. that vacant I might, stare. I might have been thinking about you, you been, when yeah. I was writing that. <laughs> It works here. It there does. are moments like the scene, one of the really effective scenes in the movie where he's looking at a TV and you're hearing all the sounds and you assume he's watching some horrific news report about the war somewhere. And it turns out he's just looking at the TV screen. That's really effective. And maybe his blank stare there really does work. So it isn't Cooper that's the problem for me at all. I've seen some of the really staunch defenders of this movie. They can't even defend the last 10 or 15 minutes of this film. Yes, I will not either. And my only comment on that is I don't think the final scene is an aberration. I think the final scene is unfortunately mm. a culmination of every other clunky moment in this movie. It's Eastwood to me, Josh, feeling obligated to provide a conclusion to the character study this movie could have been and provide some closure on the issues that he only gives lip service to throughout the rest of the movie. And maybe this is where I'm going to get a little bit political, though I really do refrain from trying to pick those kind of simple sides on this issue. That does trouble me, not just because it's clumsy. And poor Sienna Miller, who you noted, is really good here. She has a line or two in particular that are just terribly loaded and unwieldy. But because it feels so manipulative considering what follows. If you know anything at all, the basic story about Chris Kyle, which is really all I knew going in, how his life ended and what he was known for, Eastwood here just doesn't seem content. He's not going to take any chances that we might not feel the full blow of the stomach punch that's going to come. So he lathers the good husband slash proud wife stuff on as thick as he can. And I think more troubling than that, that it's manipulative, is that it doesn't feel earned because Eastwood doesn't let the Chris Kyle he depicts on screen earn it. His reversal in this film, his reversal as a character, or his healing, if you want to say that, it can't take up more than 10 to 15 minutes of screen time. It's compressed either because Eastwood doesn't care or, as we were saying, maybe just isn't comfortable enough with it. His heart really isn't in it. Maybe because it's so messy, he can't explore it the way it really deserves to be explored. And I fear that by the end of this movie, it risks sending a message that once you decide to get well, look how easy it is. A few group therapy sessions, going to the shooting range with the boys, and what do you know? You're good as new. If only we were all as good a man and soldier as Chris Kyle is, we could overcome this pesky PTSD issue. So getting back to my larger thesis about what doesn't work for me about this film, in terms of being challenged about masculinity or anything else, I don't think you'll be enlightened in any way here, certainly on the conflict in Iraq, the people of Iraq. Everyone here uniformly is at times comically evil. There's no doubt about that. There is nothing to challenge a single viewer watching this movie who doesn't love America unequivocally. They're going to see in Chris Kyle's redemption, just reinforcing all of their prior held beliefs. You're not describing American Sniper. You're describing Lone Survivor, which we got last I didn't year see that. around this time. That is 
largely a piece of military propaganda. And so we do get those movies. They exist. That's not what we have here. Now, I will agree that the final 10 minutes or so are a huge problem. For me, it wasn't because they were a culmination. It's because they were such an aberration. I think if they had been in line with what the movie was doing, it would not have jarred me as much. And I probably would have disliked the movie earlier, as a matter of fact. But I found these final 10 minutes absolutely shocking, not only because I knew nothing about his life and how it did end. That was one element of it and how clumsily that is delivered. My goodness, is that a clunker? (laughs) Yes, it is. In the issues that you're talking about, I found it to be almost an about face from the nuanced consideration of, again, going back to this idea of Chris Kyle or this movie's Chris Kyle was almost bred for righteous violence. And I want to get into the scenes of him as a kid as well. And so he's found this place where he thinks can be a good channel for it. It's the military. And then he finds himself in this period of history where we're on the war on terror. And that becomes distorted so that he's sent somewhere out of his control. I think these are all elements that are very affecting and they're eating away at the exact thing, this exact macho thing that he purports to be. I'm going to go protect America. What he discovers there is that even righteous violence has a cost and he pays a personal cost. And I think that's an interesting journey to follow. Those final 10 minutes are an about face from Hmm. that. And it really left me with my jaw dropped in that, you know, what? Not that I needed it to be more of a pacifist film in those final 10 minutes, but more to strike that balance. And the only thing I can think of, and this goes to my theory that this is a balanced movie, is that Eastwood saw that and started to think, wow, I've got to swing things a little bit back for the respect of military families Mm -hmm. and those people who have given their service in the military. And I think he does swing it back way too far at the end, but only because what came before is really interesting. Chief Chris Kyle? Yes, sir. My name is Mads. Um, we met in Fallujah, you saved my life. I did? Yes, sir. We were stuck in a house until you came in with First Marines. You were the one that carried me out. Oh, wow, well, Marines saved our ass plenty of times. Uh, how are you, you all right? You hold up? Great, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to be alive. It hasn't been... Cool. It hasn't been easy. Well, you know, a lot of guys lost more than just a leg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you lose some friends? Well, that too, but I'm talking about the guys that lived. You know, they made it back, but they're just not, they're just not back. You know, they can't seem to get right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from Clint Eastwood, American Sniper. About that end, I had a funny text exchange with a buddy of mine, big movie fan in Nashville, John Burr, earlier today. I don't even think he knew we were discussing American Sniper. He just sent me a text and said, man, that's a weird movie. And his point was really funny. There are some scenes that make you wonder if Eastwood hates or is scared of the protagonist. And I Hmm. said, I think that's dead on. That seems right. But what's a scene that you're thinking of for an example? And he said, the scene that really weirded me out was the last one with the big pistol and his wife. There is a scene in these last 10 minutes or so, so without strange. getting into it too much, so where he's just strange. walking around the kitchen around his kids and his wife with this pistol. And I wrote back, I said, you're right. That was crazy. Isn't he just like walking around the kitchen with it? And John said, so unsettling. It's even cocked. And yes. there is that sense in that scene that you can't tell whether or not He's using that as some kind of critique of 
whatever masculinity well, Adam, of war, I think it goes, or it, it's just the sense of he's almost not the saint schizophrenia that, there is to this film yes, in terms of just yes. trying to hit so many different notes so it's not this movie that you talked about where they say everything's okay if you just go to a few sessions of therapy i got the clear idea that now i'm not saying that wasn't a clumsy scene but it was certainly there to put us on edge to mm. realize that this guy hasn't solved his issues right. that's how but I then we it. have to get Sienna so, Miller just putting a fine point on it exactly I, it, it's clumsy but it's not portraying him as a saint that's that's all I'm trying to I'm say. not arguing he's a saint no and I want to get to the scenes in Iraq the battle scenes because I believe the one that you pointed as the worst is possibly the one I like the best are you talking about the dust storm yeah. sequence okay yeah. Wow. For me, I found the scenes of the pursuit of the enemy sniper to be from another movie, from a routine military thriller. Mm -hmm. Did not care for those at all. And largely because it does set up good-bad too easily. That's what I'm arguing. The dust storm sequence completely upends that because what happens when this rush comes in of sand and they're completely lost and it's it's really deeply evocative in terms of the hues. It's their ochre shadows here and odd shapes. It's like from a completely different movie. The cinematographer is Tom Stern and it throws everything into disarray. We don't know who's shooting at who. There are these bursts of gunfire and for me the overall point is that we're no longer seeing good, bad, American, Iraqi. In essence, it goes back to that early scene of Chris Kyle as a kid when his father sits him down. And here's a here's a perfunctory scene that in a movie that was doing something a little bit more differently, I would probably criticize. But for a surface level film that in a lot of ways American Sniper is, I think, works. The dad sits them down at dinner and tells him and his younger brother about the sheep, the sheepdogs, and the wolves. Oh, brother. And this is intercut with a scene from Recess that day where the little brother was getting bullied and Chris comes in and beats up the bully. And the dad tells Chris that he is blessed with the gift Mm -hmm. of aggression. Now, this scene is hitting things a little too hard for my taste, but I love that phrase in how it encapsulates The American ideal in the war on terror, blessed with the gift of aggression. And so I do think that Chris Kyle is a figure in this film that's supposed to symbolize that overall foreign policy. And the movie does a lot to eat away at that because he's sent, again, bread for righteous violence, bread for it since he was a kid, sent out to enact it on the world on behalf of America. doesn't quite go as planned. You said you would probably in most cases criticize a scene like that i'll go ahead and do the honors and criticize it for you let's talk about scenes that are putting too fine a point on it that are underlining it whatever it is i knew i was going to struggle with this movie and we've been talking about this recently mr turner selma we focused on the biopic last week and all the things a biopic can do wrong in terms of explaining psychology imbuing moments and scenes with added weight and meaning i knew i was going to struggle with this film from that very moment of that flashback where we see them at the table and he tells them about there being three types of people in this world, the wolves, the sheep, and the sheepdogs or something along those lines that just sets up these easy dichotomies and easy paradigms that I think the movie is then going to reinforce. And that's what it ultimately does. And those kind of moments are the things that trouble me. We get other moments similarly heightened unnecessarily, Josh, where His wife, I believe she's pregnant with their first kid, and we have to see this whole disturbing sequence where she just walks out of the ultrasound, and I think, speaking of masculinity, breaks the news to him about what kind of child they're going to have, and 
We have to then watch her suffer through listening to her husband get caught in a firefight. And we have to suffer through watching her as well. It's taking moments that probably didn't happen in real life or even if they did happen in real life doesn't matter and saying I've got to amp up the emotion of this as much as possible and just kill the audience with the danger of this and the toll it takes on these people. Well, we can see that in a lot of ways that don't require us to watch those kind of sequences play out. Okay, but that early speech about the sheep, sheepdogs and wolves is not reinforced by the rest of the film. That's what I had forgotten to get to about that dust storm sequence, Mm -hmm. because he's given his clear role by his dad in the dust storm sequence. When we can't see who's who, the question becomes... Okay, what is he at this point? Is is he really a sheepdog? Has he turned into a wolf? And these things, I think, are evocative and challenging in a way for people who hmm. maybe have not thought about America's military role in that campaign. And I think, again, a scene like that works, even though it's on the nose, going back to this idea you raised of Eastwood's classicism. If that's how you want to describe his style of filmmaking, then I... I can see how this sort of scene does fit in because it is something that's done in that sort of classical manner. Now, the reason I don't hold Eastwood up quite as high as some people who use that argument might and and say that he is this overlooked auteur is because his track record for me is way too spotty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned a few on the top that just do not work at all. And he has a lot of those. Maybe this year, I didn't see Jersey Boys, but maybe this year is the perfect Eastwood example because I don't believe it was very well received by audiences in general and and certainly by critics. I know it had its defenders because you do have your Eastwood defenders no matter what he does. But this year maybe gives us that idea of why I'm reticent about Eastwood is because he can do something really intriguing and interesting like American Sniper and then from what most people have said, something else like Jersey Boys. I love your articulation of that final scene. We just see it very differently because I think what I remember singularly about that is what you touched on is a problem. And that's the good versus bad dichotomy of what his objective is in that scene, first and foremost, and the way that's handled. He's there to take down his bad guy, his nemesis. Right. That but, leads to other but issues. But notably, that's all before the dust storm. Yes. That dust storm is, is like gets so them into it. key. Right. It's almost like we've got the two movies right. there, right? That dust storm, though, for me, Josh, is just another example of the metaphorical dust storm that happens when the wife is down on her knees, pregnant, outside the hospital, listening to the firefight. Another case of so, Eastwood piling okay, on. Okay, but so what are you arguing here? That you disagree with the the thematic use of the dust storm or the aesthetic use because the thematic u- well the thematic use to me is to exactly undercut mm-hmm. the mano a mano sniper v sniper that preceded okay. it. that that's your that's, fair. You know, that's the sort of military rah rah mm-hmm. um scene we're going to get and then i would say that the dust storm undercuts that by confusing everything and mixing yeah. everyone up so but but if neither of those worked for you then yeah they don't and i i guess i just don't see as much confusion i see chaos but i don't know about confusion in terms of the themes i do have a couple notes I lied about Cooper, though I basically have already said it. He does embody this huge presence who, nevertheless, as the movie goes on, what I like about how he plays the role is that you see him just coiling up more and more. He gets smaller, I feel like, on screen, even though he actually probably physically gets bigger as he gets more out of shape. You know what I think it is? I think it's he becomes more anonymous. Yeah. Um, And and you notice, like, even the beard he grows is part of that. It's so big. And it seems to me, at least, like he wore those dark sunglasses Mm -hmm. more and more as his tours continued and, and even the hat he pulls low so he yeah you mentioned it being an, going inward yeah it's Cooper totally internalized and, yeah, yeah. which I like to see here because I think that's exactly my problem with Cooper sometimes is he mm. doesn't internalize enough and things are a little bit too obvious and outward this is unshowy and it might be his best performance though 
I'd go back maybe to Guardians of the Galaxy where I didn't have to look at him at all, and I just got to hear his voice. I thought he was really good there and had a sense of humor in that movie. That and I raccoon think had a great yeah, distant stare, too. I'm sure he did. Probably a good note to end on. If you've seen American Sniper and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Was I right to be prematurely outraged on last week's show about the Academy Award nominations? We'll discuss after the break when I'll also channel my Oscar anger into an edition of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Kick a hole in the hallway wall, singing like a painted lady. Use your skull like a cannonball, but it better not wake the baby. How long will this go on? How long will it be? Bang your drum till the money's all gone, but it better not wake the into a segment about the Oscar nominations with Everything is Awesome, the very definition of irony. Josh, welcome back to Film Spotting. We're certainly going to cover the Lego movie, Josh's number one movie of the year. The Academy apparently doesn't agree. As we are going to spend a little bit of time on the Oscar snubs, there might be one or two things that the Academy got right in there. We'll see. Movies.com helped us out. They listed what they perceived to be the top 20 Oscar snubs. And it's a little interactive thing where you can click like on a thumbs there's, up. There's a top 20. I mean, top 20. Apparently there's so many. so many they had to whittle it down to 20. Yeah, exactly. So you can click on the thumbs up or the thumbs down if you agree. And then they automatically get resorted based on how popular the choices are. So what was the biggest snub on down to the least egregious snub? And I looked at those 20 and thought it might be fun to kind of rank them a little bit how I would order those. And I think one of the things we do have to talk about, though, initially is what does qualify as a snub? Because Tom Hardy was my favorite male actor of the year. Scarlett Johansson was my favorite actress of the year. No Nobody hope. expected them. No hope. No. I didn't expect them to get an Oscar nomination. No one else did either. So without those expectations, without any hype behind it, hard to say that's a snub. But there were cases, and I broke these down into two categories of these top 20. There are cases where the overall expectation level and sense of disappointment matched mine and my personal favorites. So this first category I'm calling should have been contenders. These are just ridiculous oversights that I wish I could somehow go back and amend. Starting with Josh, number one. The Lego movie, not getting a Best Animated Feature nomination. You know, I'm over it. The window that I threw the chair through yeah. when they came out Thursday morning, it's been repaired. Good. So I, I'm feeling I'm in a better place <laughs> now. I, no, I mean, it's, you know, the Lego movie doesn't need any more attention. It, do, it doesn't it's need true. any Oscar honoring. In fact, in that category, I'm 
just happy to see the tale of the Princess Kaguya. I am as well. You know, I, I would rather see that, to be honest with you, because what does it do for the Lego movie to get Good an point. Oscar win? Wow. I, I, see, I'm I'm learning Very to be objective, a better person. Very objective, clear-headed way of looking <laughs> at things, Josh. I'm <laughs> trying to I'm be really positive impressed. here, too. But <laughs> no, that's honestly, that is honestly how I felt about it, at least as far as Lego movies concerned. Yeah. This morning, my daughter Sophie broke the news to my oldest, Holden, that the Lego movie didn't get a Best Animated Oscar Uh-oh. nomination, and Holden said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm guessing he speaks for many children out there. And he's heard a lot of ridiculous things, so. He has, just from his old man, unfortunately. <laughs> Number two, Ray Fiennes not getting an Oscar nomination, Best Actor for the Grand Budapest Hotel. That, I, I can I don't understand. I mean, how could that be when Grand Budapest is in the co-lead for nominations, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So this is where you just don't even understand. Not that you don't agree with how the Academy is thinking or voting, but you don't understand it. Because the movie with that many nominations, surely, I didn't realize till a few days later he didn't get nominated. Because really? I saw I saw nine nominations. And, and I was like, well, after Best Picture, it's Ray Fiennes, right? Ridiculous. Yeah. Well, we're going to diverge, I think, on my number three, Josh, a little bit. And... For me, the third most egregious snub is Gillian Flynn not getting Best Adapted Screenplay for Gone Girl. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, you don't care. <laughs> what about my number four, Force Majeure, being overlooked for Best Foreign Language Film? Well, I liked Force Majeure quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I ranked Ida higher at the end of the year, and the other four nominees I haven't seen. So whether or not that's an oversight, I can't really say. Since when has that mattered? Again, you're being way too objective and <laughs> okay. clear-headed. I'm outraged. I know you'll I'm be outraged. outraged. I know you will be outraged about my number five, Jig Gyllenhaal. That's, no nom for Nightcrawler. That's ridiculous because, again, it does work for what the Academy is looking for. Someone in their mid-career, maybe you know, still early career, but moving into that mature phase of their career, here's a chance for them to get a nomination to put them in that club. Do you think this is a movie that just wasn't seen by Academy voters? Maybe. That might be That's the only explanation I could think of. My number six, Life Itself, the Steve James film about Roger Ebert being overlooked for best documentary. Now, you saw more documentaries than I did last year. Would you have ranked it among the top five you saw? Yeah, that is the case for me. All of these, these first eight here are cases where they were in my top five in those categories of the year. So absolutely, Life Itself deserved to get an Oscar nomination. Number seven, Tilda Swinton, my favorite supporting actress, turn of the year in Snowpiercer. And number eight. Sticking with Snowpiercer, not getting an Oscar nomination for production design. Again, I'm not overly outraged about that. It's number eight on the ranking, but it was on the list there of the 20 for movies.com, and I certainly think it warranted more consideration than it got. The next batch of five here, Josh, I'm calling could have been contenders. Okay. Wouldn't have necessarily been in my top five in these categories, but certainly better than at least one of the nominees and should have been in there. Number nine, then, in terms of snubs for me, David Oyelowo. We talked about him, best actor, as Martin Luther King in Selma. And you can just really quickly, and I know you're with me here, brush aside Steve Carell for lead actor. He shouldn't even be in the category for Fox. Yeah, Catcher. but you knew, you knew that was going to happen. You did, but right? that doesn't make it right. And, and No, it doesn't. But Oyelowo, okay, let's... So you said that he would not have been among your top five lead performances no right okay he would have been considered so right so i guess i'm in the same exact boat and here we're getting into where did i see something in the new york times today an argument i think it was david carr that the artistic merit of selma almost doesn't matter when it comes to oscar nominations there are times when you know there's a responsibility Hmm. to hold up a film uh, in a way that the Academy has the power to hold up. Um, I don't buy that. 
I don't agree with that. And as but you did love the performance. I love the performance. And you like it more than but, Steve Carell. But I can't. Uh, yes, but I can't act too outraged if I guess the way I look at it is. Would it have been in one of my top five slots? And he wouldn't have been. And now that's not to take away anything from the performance, but it's just a reflection on other performances that I appreciated more during the year. So, again, how are we defining a snub here? Well, we're defining it in terms of we would have ranked. No, we would have ranked Oyelowo's performance far, far higher than someone who did get it. And so that's why I'm saying I'm not outraged by it. It's my number nine here in this ranking. But you get the sense this is the one we should be outraged about, right? Yeah, I do think so. And I think it, you know, it gets us to the idea of Selma too, which both of us I liked a little bit more than you. We both appreciated Mm -hmm. though. Wouldn't have been in my top 10. No, me neither. And I didn't redo my top 25. I saw it after I had made that list. It probably would have been among the top 25. But also, I'm not going to put it ahead of other films because I feel the time is right. Does that make sense? It does. And it gets to this larger argument as well of this being the whitest Oscars in well we're gonna get there 15 years we're gonna get there okay yeah let's go ahead and get through these real quick and we'll come back to that I know you're not going to be with me on my number 10 interstellar for best picture not expecting it not saying it would have been in my top five though I think I had it as my number six so obviously I considered it but you can kick out of the top eight for me Birdman American Sniper the imitation game all three of those could have been replaced by a better film in my eyes interstellar the theory of everything is the only one of the eight nominees I haven't seen yet so okay. even though I have no interest in seeing it I can't actually sit here and say that it's not better than interstellar um it, uh, this is the first time I've ever thought to compare the theory of everything and interstellar uh-huh. and comparing those two is pointless so I'm pretty surprised Interstellar did not get that nomination. Really? Though. Yeah. Huh. It's And I, I'm trying to figure out why. Was it the reviews were largely positive, but were there enough mixed ones or detracting ones? I guess I would say the ones that detracted were pretty strongly opposed to it. And maybe that sense of. You know, a lack of consensus scared some voters away. I don't know. Well, we come back to the Selma issue with my number 11, Ava DuVernay, the director of Selma, not getting a nomination for Best Director. We are going to talk about that a little bit more. But even though Selma, as you said, wouldn't have been in your top 10, not in my top 10 either, certainly. I can kick out, though, the director of Birdman. Alejandro gonzalez Signari too, Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, and Morton Tilden for The Imitation Game, which I just finally did see. I think DuVernay would deserve a nomination ahead of them. Number 12, Josh Brolin for Supporting Actor for Inherent Vice. Again, not something that's keeping me up at night. And I really need to say, in fairness, I haven't seen The Judge, so I shouldn't kick out Robert Duvall, but I love the other four, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. So that's why Brolin's near the bottom of that list. And then number 13, Interstellar not getting a nomination for Best Cinematography. And it's hard for me to really complain about that one, Josh, because you look at the nominees. The one thing I'll say positive about Birdman, I'm all in on Emmanuel Lubezki, the Grand Budapest Hotel, lovely. Ida, so glad to see it get a nomination. Mr. Turner, so glad to see that get a nomination. I haven't seen Unbroken. I do love Roger Deakin, so I guess I have to give that one the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Ida is one of the real encouragements for me from all of these nominations is that it didn't just get that foreign language film nod, which mm-hmm. can sometimes be that category can be like the animation category in a way is, OK, we'll, we'll give you a nod here. But the fact that it was recognized in cinematography as well as encouraging that the Academy is doing their homework and, and seeking out some really good stuff. The remaining ones that Movie.com listed really just didn't matter to me at all. Jessica Chastain for Best Supporting Actress in a Most Violent Year was my least favorite part right. of the film. The Guardians of the Galaxy not getting an adapted screenplay nomination. I thought the movie was fine. 
I'm okay with that getting overlooked. Foxcatcher being overlooked for Best Picture, I'm definitely okay with that. And the other ones I haven't seen, The Hobbit for Visual Effects, Unbroken for Best Picture, The Overnighters for Best Documentary, that's the one film on this list I'm going to see before Oscar time. And then Jennifer Aniston, The Snub for Cake. Had you ever heard of Cake? I had only because I started seeing it when we were putting together our favorite performances of the year, I wanted to see if I was wildly uh-huh. out of touch with anybody. So I went to some of those awards websites that track those things. And I'm yeah. seeing Jennifer Aniston for a movie I've never even right. heard of. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, strange. what am I missing? And then our friend David Ehrlich wrote an article for Slate about the shameless Oscar grab mm. that is Cake and the whole campaign for Jennifer Aniston there. I think Jennifer Aniston's a pretty decent actress. I can think of some roles yeah. I've really liked her in. I know Cake is opening sometime here soon in Chicago. I don't think it's one we're probably going to make a whole lot of time for. We'll link to that Ehrlich article in our show notes. So let's talk about just big picture-wise, some of the other things that jumped out to us, not in terms of specific snubs. The first thing I had, Josh, was this notion that you brought up and that has been the big focus of the discussion, justifiably so, since the Oscar nominations were announced, this lack of diversity and the lack of recognition for women. And I haven't had a chance to read a whole lot of these articles, but I have skimmed several of them just to try to see if my inclination is correct. And so far, it's been validated. There seems to be this sense that if Ava DuVernay had gotten a Best Director nomination, that this wouldn't have been a problem. Hollywood's these articles would be yeah, over. None of these articles would have been written or need to be written. And of course, that's just that's just false. She's just one woman. Right. She's just one African-American okay. woman. That doesn't solve the problem. So you're exactly getting at my problem with this whole conversation is that the Academy Awards are not the appropriate litmus test for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because it is such a small sample size. It's, you know, a very specific group of voters making these decisions. And the problem occurs long before the Oscars. And I also want to put the brakes on all this righteous indignation and separate, you know, try not to fall prey to it myself because I am a big fan of Selma and I was a big fan of Oyelowo's performance and DuVernay's direction. But I don't want to get too upset because if I look at the votes I cast in various Mm -hmm. awards before any of this talk came out, it was real white this year. Yeah. Real white. And in the other categories like directing, it was very male. Right. I'm not proud of that. And I wonder, is that a reflection of the year's movies? And so then I'll look back at some previous years and see votes I cast then. Mm -hmm. And in previous years, it was a lot more diverse. So what that tells me is that this isn't necessarily the Academy voters' faults. Now, Selma is surprising to me because it hits so many Oscar beats that voters usually go for. That's what shocks me. But I also think the root problem here is who's given projects. Yes. What projects who's are giving the projects? Who is giving the projects? Who is being cast? Who's being allowed to audition? Now these are decisions that have happened two, three, four years prior. Clearly there is a problem. I don't know if the solution is getting Academy voters to cast better votes. No. We had exactly the same sort of pattern of thought after all this happened, where we looked back at our list and said, okay, well, okay. we're just as guilty yes. as these Academy voters. For the most part, I would have had 
Gillian Flynn certainly in there. That's one woman I could have said should have gotten a nomination that the Academy snubbed. But other than that, I'm not going to sit here and exonerate ourselves any more than I'm going to exonerate the Academy. If certain people want to say we're part of the problem as well, maybe we are. That's your argument to make. I would respond to that simply with, but what are the alternatives? Do you have alternatives that you can pose to us and say, you overlooked these or you gave short shrift to these? The real problem here is exactly what you said. It's the options we're choosing from by the people who are giving us those options. Yes, but there is a responsibility, and it's one I feel we do a fairly good job at, we could always do better at, is seeking out those other films Mm -hmm. that are not as easily available or as widespread and giving them a shot at making those year-end lists. Now, that is our responsibility because they're out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the vast desert that the Academy Award nominations would make it look like. And, you know, it, with the amount of movies that we each can fit in during the year while seeing the ones that we have to see, I think we do do our best. Could we do better? Probably. And mm-hmm. that would reflect, I'm sure, in a little bit more diverse ballots of our own at the end of the mm-hmm. year. Best Actor. Talk about a category that I was completely out of sync with in terms of the final nominees. And I don't have that list in front of me, but none of my top five actors of the year. In fact, none of my top 12 lead actors of the year made the final five by the Academy. So the final five are Carell, Bradley Cooper, Benedict Cumberbatch, Michael Keaton and Eddie Redmayne. Who did I have? I think I'm with you. I am. I had Ray Fiennes. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. The me two too. Snubs we talked about. Jack O'Connell and Starred Up. Mm-hmm. Haluk Bilginer for Winter Sleep. I mean, I, I was <laughs> Where was his nomination? I, that's the second chair went out the window when that didn't come through. And Guy Pierce for the rover. I didn't hold out a lot of hope for that. But no. But yeah, I mean, I would agree that that was a category where totally different trajectory than where I was on. Best actress similarly out of sync. I did have Marion Cotillard for Two Days, One Night. That was a real pleasant surprise for me and other pleasant surprises we hit on already a little bit. Dick Pope. Or am I saying that correctly? <laughs> I think you got it. I'm not so it. sure anymore. For Mr. Turner, absolutely deserves to be in yes. the running for the Oscar for Best Cinematography. And Lucas Zoll and Richard Lenzuski for Ida. Again, pleasant surprise. Yep. Didn't expect it, hoped for it, but really glad so to see deserving. it So deserving. Now, Best Supporting Actor. This one was interesting to me, Josh, because we voted for the Chicago Film Critics Association ballot long before yeah. we sat down and did our top 10 Early, or before mid-December. the Oscar nominations came out. And I knew that J.K. Simmons would be in my top four or five, and I knew that he was probably going to be on a lot of different critics groups lists and would probably get an Oscar nomination. I had no other sense at that point, had not looked at any of the other handicapping websites. I didn't know what the other favorites were, and I voted for the ones, obviously, that I admired the most. And I had Ed Norton, Mark Ruffalo, Ethan Hawke in there with J.K. Simmons. Turns out Chicago film critics largely agreed with me. Those four were four of the five candidates. And then the Oscars came out. Same four were in there. One category where I was pretty much completely in lockstep. And if you had seen the judge and voted for Duvall, you could have been an Academy member. (laughs) I could have. No. I I went uh, out on a limb with a couple of my best supporting actor votes. Toby Kebbell, who I talked about in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I knew that wasn't going to happen. Gary Poulter, um, a long shot as well. I did have J.K. Simmons and I did have Ethan Hawke. Another long shot. Hey, hey, I get some diversity credit here. David Ayala, who was in Startup, one of the prisoners. Really? Um, only a couple of scenes, but I thought really rooted those prison therapy moments. That's an old Matty Robinson pick right there, going with someone who has three scenes, but they were really memorable. He might have four. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, though, overall, you were just overjoyed 
with Meryl Streep getting a Best Supporting Actress nod for Into the Woods Ugh. and makeup and hair. The prosthetic nose fox catcher being duly recognized, Josh. Yes, well, when you put that much effort into it, you should be recognized. Okay, well, that's all the Oscar talk we're going to give you for now. I think that was probably about 20 minutes too much of Oscar (laughs) talk. And surely we will have more as we do our Oscar show the week before the awards ceremony. One other thing we do want to promote here on the show, we've talked about it, the return of the film spotting marathons. Sajidit Ray, we're starting with that revered filmmaker. It starts next week. I better get watching. I saw you already started your homework, Josh, and I hate you for it. But we're starting with 1955's Padar Panchali, part one of Ray's Apu trilogy. Two weeks after that, we'll get to parts two and three. We're combining two films. The rest of the lineup is The Music Room, The Big City, and we're ending with 1964's Sharu Lata or The Lonely Wife. All I will say at this point is I think think we're going to be happy with this marathon yes good yes i see good things ahead just based on father panchali get ready everybody it is no fun if you don't follow along let's now get to a little bit of fun with massacre theater we perform a scene you get a chance at winning a prize last time we massacred this ask if you have something with a little puce in it you gotta fly off the handle what's the problem i'm not interested in what your interior decorator would say i can't commit to anything without consulting her first that's what i have her for okay this is degrading You don't buy paintings to blend in with a sofa. It's not a sofa. It's an ottoman. That was Daniel Stern as Dusty and Max von Sydow as Frederick in Hannah and Her Sisters from 1986, written and directed, of course, by Woody Allen. We massacred that scene a couple weeks back on episode 520, coinciding with our review of Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. We also shared our top five performances of 2014. Pete Craig in Alexandria, Virginia, has this. He says the connection is von Sydow plays a taciturn and eccentric painter, connecting to the featured review of Mr. Turner about the similarly nonverbal painter J.M.W. Turner, albeit in a less contemporary setting. And then he has a comment about your performance, which I said by the end, I was really feeling it. I yeah. thought you had I found my you way. Had tapped in found my way. to that accent. He says it was fascinating to observe Josh's process for funny voices in action. I can only describe his hunt for the proper accent for Frederick as being akin to a radio tuner searching for the right station. He seemed to scan through vaguely British, Hispanic, French, and German. And I'm sure he would have settled on Scandinavian if the scene had just gone on a little longer. Truly fascinating. Uh, it was a little meandering, wasn't it? But I hit it. I found it there in the end. Well, what? What do you want with eight seconds of rehearsal? That's Come true. On. Well, Jonathan Anderson in Minot, North Dakota, he disagrees that you found it in the end. Josh did kind of get it. If by getting it, you mean doing it badly, but in that recognizable oh. way. From now on, anyone who has a criticism of my Massacre Theater performance has to leave a voicemail with their rendition. That must be better I like this. than mine if you like want to take a lot. me to task. <laughs> this last comment here was some tie-ins that, of course, we didn't think of. They're great tie-ins, so I wanted to feature these comments, but also I wanted to feature it because not only does it come to us from Norway, it comes to us from someone named, and I'm sure I'm going to destroy every part of this but the first, Finn Froda Feth. That's just As fun to say. someone who's part Norwegian, I can tell you that that was terrible, Okay, and I would have no idea. <laughs> What are the tie-ins? A new jingle before Massacre Theater from Bullets Over Broadway. Yeah, Sam got a little clever there. Adam saying that he likes the writer and then later in the program blaming Woody Allen's writing for Rachel McAdams not acting great enough. That's true. Did you mean that to be a clue? Indirectly. I wasn't trying to give a hint, but it did just naturally come out. Adam listing Joaquin Phoenix as one of his favorite leads. He is starring in Woody's next movie, as is Emma Stone. Also listing Scarlett Johansson, who has starred in three Woody Allen movies. Yeah, remember that period? <laughs> I do, unfortunately. Actually, Match Point, that one, that one worked out pretty well. 
Another tie-in here, Woody often uses Lee actors, Sally Hawkins, Roger Ashton Griffiths, and Philip Davy, or Davy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Finn, for those great connections that, once again, we did not think about at all. Josh, reach in to the Film Spotting hat. The second time we've massacred Hannah and her sisters here on Film Spotting over the years, though the last time was, I think, about six years ago. Not as many entries this time. Pick out this week's winner. That winner is Catherine Stevens from Mundelein, Illinois. So glad to see Catherine Stevens come up. I think she's been listening to the show since at least 2007, and we have seen her a lot at various film spotting events, the 500th show, the main stage, her and her husband come out. Great listeners. So I was very pleased to see her claim her very own film spotting T-shirt. Catherine, just send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. We move on now to this edition of Funny Voices. I mean, Massacre Theater. A dual Funny Voices Don't demean our work in advance. (laughs) Oh, Yeah, you have a challenge here. I'm going to demean it through the process. (laughs) Never fear, Josh. (laughs) This is going to be ugly, but we're going to go for it. I've heard that you've been practicing. I have not, well, and it's probably going to be reflected in my performance. We held auditions at home without you, Yes, and it was determined which part I should have and you should have, so I'm glad you're playing along with that. <laughs> I am going to play along, and we are going to change the names in this scene mm-hmm. so as to not make it any more obvious than it surely will be by the final few lines of dialogue. The tie-in right now, if you've been listening up to this point of the show, really doesn't connect anything we've talked about yet. No. Not that we can think of. But it might come up. It just might come up. Might Might connect to something we're discussing. One of the topics on this week's show. Okay. I know I'm not ready. Are you ready, Josh? (laughs) Sure. And action. Anderson, I'm concerned about Sylvia. Have you noticed she's been acting peculiar lately? Huh. Peculiar? You know, mooning about, daydreaming, singing to herself. You haven't noticed? Oh, well, I... Anderson! Mm Hmm? I know you've been keeping something from me. Keeping something? About Sylvia? In love? I tried to stop her, sir. She wouldn't listen. I told her to stay away from humans. They are bad. They are trouble. They... Humans? What about humans? Humans? Oh, who said anything about humans? And (laughs) scene. Nailed it. No, we were not aboard the USS Enterprise with Scotty, I'm afraid. (laughs) If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title. I massacred. I don't know about wow. Josh. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, February 2nd. Josh, I think some listeners are still confused about this. I know people put our shows on hold if they listen to the podcast. You've got two weeks. Yeah. There's almost more two time weeks now. to get in this entry. There's more time than there used to be. If you're listening, there's probably time to enter, and you know what scene we just did. So please email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. All right, we already talked a bit about this year's Oscars. Let's see if we can make some Oscar 2016 predictions next as we share our most anticipated movies for the coming year. Spoiler, mine's going to be surprisingly Melissa McCarthy-free. Prediction, Adams will be heavy on the fastback. Come on. Stay with us. I want you thin-fingered 
The Decemberists are featured artists this week. Music from their just-released new album. The band is getting on the road to support that album in February, starting in Dublin on the 11th, before returning stateside for dates in late March. They're playing the Chicago Theater, Josh, here on March 27th. That might just have to be a little film-spotting outing. I like it. To see the Decemberists. Thank you, Time, as we get to some of your donations and your kind comments about the show. Tony Hastings in Melbourne, Australia, is now a $5 a month donor. Back on Film Spotting 501 in August of last year, you featured a donation message from Sarah and Rob Nichols from Melbourne, Australia, or as I like to call it, Film Spotting Way, Way South. I love that. Rob and I first formed our friendship at high school over 20 years ago, based in a large part on our shared love of movies, and we still continue to see films together whenever we can manage to arrange it. It was Rob who first recommended Film Spotting to me. While Rob told me that Sarah had arranged for some birthday greetings to be read out on the podcast, he did not tell me it also contained the surprise announcement of the expected arrival of their second child. Unfortunately, I was several episodes behind at the time and did not hear the announcement for over a month. I can't imagine what Rob and Sarah must have thought about my seeming refusal to congratulate them or even acknowledge their good news (laughs) during that time. So I have three reasons for making my donation to the podcast. One, to celebrate the safe arrival on the 16th of January of baby Camille to publicly apologize to my friends for my tardiness in congratulating them on their initial good news and number three to finally pay the dealer. All three very good reasons. Number one, the best of all. Thank you, Tony, and congratulations to Rob and Sarah. A Silver Club donation from Chris Bentley-Smith in Cambridge, UK. He says, wishing you a great 2015. Keep the shows coming. And a new Buck a Show donor. One dollar for every week of the year came to us from Stephen in Evans, Colorado. Hello, spotters, past and present. My wife and I have been listeners since the very early shows. Living in Colorado, we have a host of beautiful mountain roads to drive on and explore. More often than not, the soundtrack of these excursions is film spotting. We've spent countless hours listening to and talking about the show. It has been a source of many discoveries and the occasional friendly argument. Time to pay the dealer. Here's a buck a show so the show can still go. A few more listeners paying the dealer this week. Maddie in Seattle, Patrick in Madison, Wisconsin, and Caroline Campana, who says, I was introduced to your podcast by a dear friend, James Cust, who I would like to make this donation in honor of, though he isn't dead or anything, just deserves to be honored. So apparently this is the James honorary list, not the memorial list. Thank you for clarifying. James has not only introduced me to your podcast, but he has also championed many of the movies that were mentioned. I don't think I would have loved or even seen movies like Inside Lewin Davis, Only Lovers Left Alive, or Snowpiercer, to name a few, without the recommendations made by James. I also found out this weekend that James has been listening to your show since he was in high school dedication to say the least as the most unpretentious person i know it would be out of character for james to brag about himself or his knowledge of movies which is why i'm here to brag for him if you're ever looking for a social media phenom website click driving champion or all-around insanely intelligent dude james is the man for you though he does have very strong opinions about the king's speech argo and beasts of the southern wild Hmm. i'm intrigued i didn't know anyone had strong opinions about the king's speech (laughs) that's a good point the other two i can see yeah in the past month and a half i've been making bi-weekly drives from st louis to milwaukee and commuting over 40 minutes each way to my new job your podcast is single-handedly what has kept me sane and entertained thank you caroline thank you to all our donors and james cust i looked at the mailbag he hasn't written us a lot josh but he's been listening since episode 27 the review of the Jim Jarmusch film Broken Flowers, August 2005. Wow. The show was only at that point, let me do the math, six months old. Yet another listener who's been listening longer than I have.
Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, all you Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Allison Wilmore of the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And on our latest episode, Matzinger and I will be taking a look at The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, the new documentary offering a rare look into the legendary Japanese animation studio Ghibli. We'll also be recommending some other docs about great creators in the film world and beyond that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsbu.com. This is Colin Trevorrow, the director of Safety Not Guaranteed, and you're listening to Film Spotting. The unmistakable sounds of lightsabers whooshing and the Millennium Falcon zooming through the sky tells you that that must be the trailer for Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five most anticipated movies of 2015. Finally, we've reviewed American Sniper, the last 2014 film we're going to discuss. We're going to get to a 2015 movie next week, and it all starts right here with our 2015 movie preview. Some movies that we are excluding from the list. They've been brushed aside because, well... They're just too obvious, and at least two of them would have made my list, and I'm guessing for you as well, Josh. These were the options in our 2015 preview deathmatch we posed to listeners last week on the show. You can currently find the poll at filmspotting.net. We said, if you can only see one movie, which one of these three do you see? Is it The Force Awakens? Is it Avengers Age of Ultron? Or is it Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight? Not a surprise right now who's winning. The Force Awakens is winning but maybe by a margin that isn't quite as wide as you'd expect. The answer may surprise you. So you're going to make me go <laughs> I'm going to make to you the go to our website. website. It's called a tease. Oh my I'm going to make our listeners do the same thing if they're curious and they haven't voted already. Go to filmspotting.net. We'll share the results next week in part two of our 2015 movie preview. But again, we set these aside. They're not eligible. Force Awakens would have been my number one. Tarantino's... Your number one? Yeah, it would have been. Okay. The Hateful Eight would have been my number, number two. two. Yeah. yeah. So... I probably would have had both of them on my top five as well. Avengers, even though I liked it, mm -hmm. you didn't, probably wouldn't have made the cut. Avengers is my number 54. 50, wow. <laughs> just off the, the top of my head. The amount of homework you put into these shows is just astounding. <laughs> One other pick. Actually, I have two that I excluded. I don't know if you had any other restrictions, Josh, but Martin Scorsese allegedly has a film coming out in 2015 mm -hmm. called Silence. Yep. Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield, 17th century, Jesuit priests. Sounds amazing. I'm just not buying that it's going to come out in 2015. I'm oh, not going to get burned okay. again. I'm not going to get burned again. The way I got burned with the next one I left off, Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special. That one yeah. is finally coming out. Thanksgiving is the release date. This is Michael Shannon, one of his normal guys, Joel Edgerton in the film, Adam Driver, Kirsten Dunst, Sam Shepard, a sci-fi movie from the guy who gave us Take Shelter and Mud and Shotgun Stories. It was on our top five, as we alluded to at the top of the show, most anticipated of 2014, obviously not coming out until this year. But because we already gave it so much love, that's another one that I left off the list. 
What do you have on your list? On my list at number five is Crimson Peak. This is a haunted house horror movie. Even after Pacific Rim, from, you're going Del Toro. Yeah, you know, I'll forgive him Pacific Getting back Rim. back on the horse. It, it wasn't, you know, Pacific Rim wasn't a disaster. It was just a disappointment to not. me. And I think that this puts him in more comfortable territory. I mean, Pacific Rim... Okay, we differed there, but even you have to admit it was no Godzilla. It wasn't even 2014 Godzilla. I mean, it, I like 2014 Godzilla too. So, which did you like better, Adam? Mm. That's what matters. Does it matter? Right really? Now it does. does. It? I want an answer by the time I'm done here. I do think that Crimson Peak it has the potential to be more in line with Del Toro's insidiously creepy early stuff. So I'm thinking of something like Kronos or The Devil's Backbone. The cast too. I like quite a bit. Jessica Chastain has the lead role here, and it also features Tom Hiddleston. That's not too bad. And Mia Vasakovska. I am going to try to overlook the fact that it also features the very vanilla Charlie Hunnam from Pacific Rim. Oh, no. Rim. Yes. It, uh, you're disappointed about that, too, aren't you? Well, that's you? <laughs> the one thing we did agree on with Pacific Rim, which is the correct answer, better than Godzilla. Pacific Rim? Yes, sir. Oh, come on. Anyways, Crimson Peak opens October 16th. All right. My number five, you know, you think you're so smart. You think you know me so well. Fine. Fine. I'll just play your little role. I'll dance for you if you Which want. Which fast spender is this going to be? Oh, you know I couldn't pick. <laughs> oh, come on. I've got as my number five. Come on, Josh. My Michael Fassbender <sighs> double feature. So you're doubly cliching yourself here. You're picking Fassbender and doing <laughs> it you, twice in one pick. Did you expect anything less? Oh, man. Really? Come on. Macbeth. You've got the bard. Looks good. You've got Fassbender. Oh, and as Lady Macbeth, just Marion Cotillard. Yep. Maybe the best actress working today. Done. That's all I need to know. And that is all I really know. I'm curious about the director, Justin Kurtzel, a filmmaker I've never heard of before, taking on these heavyweight performers, mm-hmm. this heavyweight material from Shakespeare. And the only previous film I think that he's done is Snowtown Murders. I need to see maybe in prep for Macbeth, but otherwise don't know anything about this filmmaker. I'm going in completely because of the material, and really the material doesn't matter. Take Shakespeare out of it. Just tell me Fassbender and Cotillard, and I am in. But Fassbender does have another film coming out in 2015. It's called The Light Between Oceans, and this film, he stars opposite another talented actress, two of them actually, Rachel Weisz and Alicia Vikander, who I loved in Joe Wright's Anna Karenina. The director is Derek C. in France. It's his first studio film. He made The Place Beyond the Pines before that, with Ryan Gosling. He made Blue Valentine. Both movies I respect and wanted to love, but I'm very hard on Derek C. in France for some reason. I feel like the movies have so much potential and then don't quite live up to them. Gosling has been his go-to guy so far through two films. If you're going to replace Gosling, I mean, really, who's man enough? I thought you were going to say upgrade. Well, he is upgrading, yeah? frankly. Okay. Yes, right. he is. But really, who else could take over that kind of heightened masculinity? It can only be Michael Fassbender and I could have cheated even more and made this the Fassbender triple feature. He does have a film playing at Sundance called Slow West. Yeah, I was wondering if you are going to mention that because nope. that's the one I you thought about see. for my list, mm. of course. <laughs> I thought it was bad enough that I was cheating with the double feature, so I okay. left it off. Well, the Fassbender double feature, though, is my number five. I respect your restraint. <laughs> my number four is Inside Out, which maybe, maybe will be the film to get Pixar back on track. How is this not number one for you? Well, you know, for Pixar fanboy, I'll get to my other ones. I'll get to my other ones. Maybe it's because they have been a little iffy lately that it dropped to number four. I'm thinking of something like Cars 2 or even Monsters University. One good sign here that this might be back to the glory days, not that they were that long ago, is that the director is Pete Docter, who did Monsters, Inc., and even better, in my estimation, Up. 
Inside Out also has an original concept, which was one of the great things about Pixar when they started out. They weren't doing fairy tales. They weren't doing remakes. They were doing these original ideas. And here, the characters are the emotions of a young girl. So you've got Amy Poehler as Joy, Mindy Kaling as Disgust, Bill Hader as Fear, Louis Black as Anger. I love that. And you get the idea of how this is going to go. So, how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure Mm -hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, oh, you gotta be kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? Heads up also for Michael Phillips, his beloved composer, Michael Giacchino, who wrote the music for Up. He is going to be reteaming again with Dr. Here. Inside Out is coming out on June 19. I don't know. How are you ever going to relate to all those emotions inside a young girl, though? Well, I'll just look at home. <laughs> well, I'll see your Michael Phillips reference with your number four and give you one of my own in my number four, which is finally, after all the hubbub, It had some decent hype coming out of the Cannes Film Festival last year. We're finally going to get to see in theaters the latest David Cronenberg film, Maps to the Stars. This is the quick description, a tour into the heart of a Hollywood family chasing celebrity, one another, and the relentless ghosts of their past. Sounds intriguing. The fact that it's Cronenberg makes it even more intriguing, doing this kind of dark satire that he is very good at. You know, I love movies about movies, if not about making movies, movies that are about the myth of the Hollywood dream. And that's what this definitely seems to cover. You've got Julianne Moore in the lead role. Robert Pattinson, I'm hoping to redeem his rover performance from this year, Josh. He's on a roll. As a limo driver. This time, unlike Cosmopolis, where he was in the back seat, he's going to be in the front seat. Mia Vasakovska, very talented actress. You've already mentioned John Cusack in this movie as well. Phillips from Cannes Last May wrote this. A comedy black enough to pass for India, Inc., and unlike so many grotesque comedies of modern manners, a film with just enough moral seriousness to make it stick, Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars defies such long odds it should be playing roulette in Monte Carlo instead of premiering at the 67th Cannes Film Festival. A first viewing of Maps to the Stars evokes memories, or at least moments, from Robert Altman's The Player to David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, with a few Brett Easton Ellis binges for good measure. Well, that's all I needed to hear. I'm so glad you brought that one back, because I'd completely forgotten about it. Was looking forward to it, thinking it would open in the fall, didn't, and it was off my radar. We're going to have a chance to talk about it fairly soon if the release date sticks, February 27th. Perfect. My number three is Sofia Coppola's The Little Mermaid. I'm a fan of fairy tales. I'm a fan of Disney's 1989 take on this one. And I'm also a fan of Coppola. So why wouldn't I be excited about her live action version here? The details are very scarce at this point, including who will be in the title role. That's going to be a big part of this. It was once attached to director Joe Wright, who you mentioned, and it's had a variety of screenwriters. The latest reports have Edward Scissorhands scribe Caroline Thompson working on the screenplay, which in my department, that would be an encouraging development. Coppola has taken on eyebrow-raising projects before. Marie Antoinette comes to mind most. But she's always managed for me to bring her own unique spin to them. They seem like high-wire, risky mm-hmm. efforts, but she she pulls them off. At least she has so far for me. I'm hoping that's going to be the case here. There isn't 
a release date yet for this. I don't even know what the exact title is going to be. So it's one of these cross your fingers yeah. that it comes out this year. Might they need me for some voice work? <laughs> I'm available. Come I'm on. good at the funny voices. I think you failed your audition. <laughs> well, my number three most anticipated movie of 2015 is one I believe David Cronenberg turned down in order to make Maps to the Stars. It is Pitch Perfect 2. <laughs> the World Championships of Acapella, where every four years, the best from around the globe compete for world domination. No American team has ever won. That's because they hate us. The whole world. <laughs> the whole world hates us. Hate us. <laughs> kick your ass. I'm sorry, I don't speak loser. What did you say? She actually speaks eight languages, but loser is not one of them. You're just pandering now. No, I'm dead serious. I am dead <laughs> serious. It is about the Barden Bellas led by the lovely Anna Kendrick. They are entered into an international competition that no American team has ever won. Josh, will they win it? Will they win it this time? I'm going to say yes. Okay. All of your favorites from Pitch Perfect 1 are back. Elizabeth Banks producing. She produced the first one and stars briefly. She's sort of in that Fred Willard mode there where they're commenting. They're the broadcasters, if you will, of the acapella competition. She is directing, I believe, making her directing debut. Does that sound that right? That sounds right. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw With that. Pitch Perfect 2. Haley Steinfeld from True Grit joining the cast, very talented actress. And after seeing Into the Woods recently, I just need to see Anna Kendrick singing in something I enjoy. Mm. I really need that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Pitch Perfect 2, it opens May 15th. And I don't know how much I've had a chance to talk about Pitch Perfect on the show. I'm not going to go off on it here. I'm don't aware worry. of your love. Yeah, but mainly it's because I talk about it on Twitter all the time. If it comes on HBO, I'm in. I'm in till the end. But I love, I love Pitch Perfect. I don't you know do. how anyone doesn't love Pitch Perfect. You're being very sincere. I can attest to that. The have not seen film, Pitch Perfect, so I, 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 I watch it on YouTube. I'll just, when I need a lift, Josh, I'll go to YouTube. I'll type in the final showdown, the final acapella yeah. competition. Man, the Breakfast Club you're, reference, just right in the wheelhouse. Hits me. You're YouTubing Pitch Perfect clips, huh? I think... I, think I Spotify Pitch Perfect clips. I drive my wife crazy. I think Pitch Perfect 2 is going to work for you then, I think Adam. it will. I'm just seriously hoping, though, that Elizabeth Banks doesn't make that mistake, that the studio doesn't make the mistake that so many sequels do, where they take all those elements that people clearly responded to in the first one, like all the Hangover movies, and they say, well, obviously we have to just replicate those here. Yeah. yeah. Turn up the volume. Right. And that would apply if they did that, turning up the volume with this music movie. I really hope they don't. I hope they let everything just unfold in a more organic way. You can't manufacture the kind of great moments you get in Pitch Perfect. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, said, I'm in, I know I'm in I no position little, to be pulling, I said that with a little twinkle to be pulling eye, but, this face at you. But I mean but, it. Um, I mean I'm, every bit of it. I'm very pleased that that's on your list, Adam. Good. Number two, I went with Midnight Special because okay. I'm still just looking forward to it that much. I didn't want to set it aside. As you mentioned, this does, from Jeff Nichols, have a little sci-fi twist to it. It's a father and son who go on the run after the dad learns his child possesses special powers. And we know very well what Nichols can do with genre because we've seen Take Shelter, his 2011 family apocalypse drama. And it did use genre touches to create this deeply affecting psychological portrait. I don't know if you mentioned this, but it was 
on both of our top 10 yeah. lists that year. So we are big fans of his, especially when he's working in this vein. Michael Shannon was the phenomenal lead in Take Shelter, and he does return here in Midnight Special, but the main role of the father is played by Joel Edgerton. That's not too shabby either. We do get Dunst, we do get Adam Driver, and Sam Shepard in here as well, who was one of the really good things about Nichols Mud. So Midnight Special, November 25. My number two most anticipated film of the year Let's see. You're taking my favorite film, not just documentary, my favorite film of 2008. I was wondering about the this. The film that has a feat at its center so astonishing that several months ago here on the show when we were recognizing the tattoos inspired by movies that we yes. would get on our body. And frankly, Josh, I've been talking about it recently. Yes. I've got a milestone birthday coming up. I know. It might be movie tattoo time. I might just get this on my body. So okay. you're telling me well, now that there's a movie coming out? That's a narrative version of that. I'm speaking of the documentary Man on Wire. The movie is The Walk. It is the story of Philippe Petit and his attempt to cross the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, back in 1974. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, an interesting choice. Very talented actor. Don't know that I picture him as a Frenchman, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. You see him in the trailer. There is a teaser trailer out for this that really focuses on the fact that it's directed by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. He of many other Oscar-nominated films. And I'm curious. I didn't like Flight as much as a lot of people did, but obviously he's made plenty of films that I do appreciate. That isn't a big selling point for me with this movie. What is is just the subject matter and Joseph Gordon-Levitt as well. Ben Kingsley in the movie and James Badge Dale, who was one of my scene stealers for Flight, That's who right. also appeared in Iron Man 3 and I thought stole some scenes there as one of the, the villain's henchmen. Very talented actor who is in this, but just that tale, that tale, even though I know exactly how it's going to play out, I've seen it play out in documentary form, but also in a way already in narrative form because they reenact things in a way that clearly it's not actual footage. They had no actual footage of him breaking into the World Trade Center and going through the process of getting ready to do that walk. So in a way, we've seen it the way James Marsh handled it. We're going to see how Robert Zemeckis handles it in The Walk. It opens October 2nd. Well, at least hold off on your tattoo until you've seen The Walk, because then you could incorporate it into your plan. And then you have, you'll have you have four movies, right? Isn't that tattoo already encompassing no, three movies? No, it's only two. It's only two, Man on Wire and All That Jazz. Are you sure? Yes, I'm positive. Man okay. on Wire and All That Jazz, oh, which has a great line of dialogue. You have, you have plenty of room. I do. For a it third. references The Wire. Reference so, there. Joe Gideon. Three might be pushing it, Josh, but. <laughs> okay. My number one anticipated movie of 2015 is Night of Cups. This is the latest from Terrence Malick. It has Christian Bale as a Hollywood player having an existential crisis amidst the good life. Now, if Malick's recent film to The Wonder seemed to burrow into familiar Malick territory, interior considering of things like nature and spirituality, this looks like a real departure based on the trailer that I just watched in the last few days. It's urban for one thing. There seemed to be more, I'm basing a lot on a trailer, so take this all with a grain of salt, but there seem to be more LA scenes than nature scenes here. We do, of course, get an ocean sequence. Of course, you have to have that plane in the yes. waves with Malik, so we do have that. Running on the beach. But there's also a lot of youth in this trailer, which stood out to me. Party scenes, youthful faces. That was something new, at least among his more recent work. 
it's really fast yeah. what's going on mm-hmm. in this trailer. Again, maybe it's edited that way just for this, but it suggests quick cuts. It suggests a more frantic camera. And it seems to be hinting at some sort of meditation on sexual desire. That's not something Malik has really focused on. The thing that came to mind for me was Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut, hmm. just really lasering in on something that's you know a central subject for the cinema that a master filmmaker hasn't really taken on and came away, in Kubrick's case, I think, with something pretty masterful. So if I have any reservations about Night of Cups, it's probably that Bale is at the center here. Mm-hmm. Right? Kind of gone back and forth, been a little disenchanted with him in recent years. But then again, Malik made Ben Affleck work into The Wonder, I thought, just perfectly. So he can easily work with Bale. Night of Cups is screening at the Berlin International Film Festival in February. There's not a U.S. date set, but if it's screening that early, we will get it sometime this year. So I have to give you partial credit for this. My number one is also Night of Cups, and okay. it wasn't going to be. I had my list all set to go I until earlier you to watch today. The trailer, yeah, and basically you just mentioned it, and I had gone by this on different websites where all I saw was Christian Bale's face and the unfortunate title Night of Cups. It is, unfortunate. and I said I have no interest in seeing this. Well, even you as you try to avoid trailers, anyway. I do right. So even as I now recall, a week or so ago when news broke on Twitter that there's a new Terrence Malick trailer. I avoided that, and I didn't put it together that this was it. I'm going to go you one more after seeing the trailer, Josh. I don't think this is just our most anticipated movie of the year or maybe going to be one of the better movies of the year. I think the trailer is already probably the best film of 2015. <laughs> it's pretty, I could just watch the trailer. It's something, Two and a half minutes, it? I could just watch the trailer on repeat, yeah. constant, yep. because... It's fascinating. And you touched on, you didn't mention these filmmakers, but you talked about L.A. and youth, and you talked about the speed of the cuts. Well, guess who I have jotted down here? It's like Malik got together with Sofia Coppola and Baz Luhrmann, ah. which I don't know if that sounds all that enticing. Terrence Malick is still all over every bit of that trailer. For sure. But seeing him in that urban setting, you're so right. I even remember, to the wonder, we talked about this during our review, how jarring it was to see him in the modern day. If you think about it, Badlands is even a period piece to some degree. The New World, The Thin Red Line, Days of Heaven. He's a filmmaker who revels in period and in nature. And to the wonder had, you know towns and power lines and that felt so out of place it blew my mind to see those in a terrence malick vision and this looks like it's taking that obviously to a whole nother level so i love the trailer i can't wait to see what malick does with this film and i might have been inclined to leave it off just because sort of like his last film we all heard about the film he shot in austin and that was coming up ben affleck in that well guess what it's sitting somewhere mm-hmm. and we're never going to see it but the fact that it's playing in Berlin exactly. next month yeah. gives us hope, has to give us hope. And there's a trailer out for it that it's going to be released in theaters this year. And I can't wait to see it. Night of Cups, my number one most anticipated film of 2015 as well. And those are our most anticipated films of the year. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions you want to get to? Yeah, I do have a handful here all grouped together as established auteurs. You mentioned Scorsese's Silence, but you could also throw in there Spielberg's Cold War spy thriller that's mm-hmm. coming out this year, although I'm even more excited for his one after that, which is the Roald Dahl adaptation of the BFG. Gus Van Sant's Sea of Trees is coming out. Todd Haynes' Carol, Michael Haneke's Flash Mob, all mm. of those were contenders for this list. Some really heavyweights coming out with stuff this year. Green Room is Jeremy Saulnier's follow-up to Blue Ruin, which we both really liked. He's this going year. with the colors again. Uh, apparently, yeah. Little uh, theme here. And I Walk with the Dead is Nicholas Winding Refn's new film. 
not positive it'll come out this year, but it is supposedly a female-focused horror film, which is just an intriguing idea to be coming from him. I'm willing to forgive him. Only God forgives. Give him a chance with I Walk with the Dead. You mentioned Macbeth. Joy is coming out. I know you're not going to be looking forward to this one. David O. Russell directing Jennifer Lawrence again. Maybe. Mm-mm. Okay. No. Queen of Earth is Alex Ross Perry's next one. He's going to be reteaming with Elizabeth Moss. And one more here because this was on my list last year. Never got released. It's The Lobster from Dogtooth's Yorgos Lanthimos, a dystopian matchmaking future story. Yeah. Um, really hope it does get its release this year. I'm with you on that one. I think I'm with you on almost every one of those you mentioned. There are even more I could get into, but we're going to do a two-parter here next week on the show, have some more 2015 preview things, though not specifically movie choices. So I want to avoid getting into too many details about these films. But in addition to the ones you covered, and I specifically noted Inside Out, the Pixar movie, and Sea of Trees, the Van Zandt film, Mad Max, Fury Road, my guy, Tom Hardy, in the next film in that series, I guess you have to look at it that way, George Miller back directing that Mad Max movie. We want to know your picks. What are you most excited about this year? Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out in limited release this weekend, opening here in Chicago, The Humbling, Barry Levinson adapting a Philip Roth novel with Al Pacino as an aging actor who has an affair with a lesbian. It stars Kira Sedgwick and Greta Gerwig. Out in wide release, The Boy Next Door, a teen stalks his next-door neighbor, who is J-Lo. Mordecai, comedy starring Johnny Depp as a debonair art dealer and part-time rogue. It stars Gwyneth Paltrow, directed by David Kep. It's currently also playing in my own personal hell. (laughs) Death is not an option. You have to choose one, Mordecai or The Boy Next Door. Wait a minute. Keep going. (laughs) You're not done yet. Strange magic. Animated <laughs> film taking place in the world of goblins, elves, fairies, and imps. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> there it is. Now you have to answer. There That's it is. That's your personal hell. <laughs> <laughs> Man, of those three. Come on. I'm going J-Lo. Really? I might. I might. Mordecai. Wait, you mean that's the one you'd you'd want to see? Yeah. Oh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> I'm with you. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Next week on the show, even though it opened last weekend, and it will have been out for two weeks, we are going to get to Michael Mann's Black Hat, starring Chris Hemsworth, because we don't care about the timing. It's a Michael Mann movie, and I want to see it, and I want to talk about it. Do we also not care about the largely really bad reviews? Is that so? From what I've seen. I haven't seen it. kind of makes it more intriguing to me. There are a lot of man apologists out there. There are. Oh, yeah, and I've definitely seen those. I've seen two or three of those, so I just thought everyone loved it. Now, from what what I've seen is one way or the other. I've seen the handful of apologists who, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever he does is great, predominantly really bad okay well we'll see where we fall that's right next week on the show and we will get to that part two of our 2015 preview not most anticipated movies but most anticipated other things might be performances or it might be just other questions we want to see answered or are curious to see how that will play out maybe an actor or actress trying something different a director going in a new direction a screenwriter becoming a director for the first time whatever it may be we'll get to those next week here on the show Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from the Decemberists and their new album, What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. 
goodbye.